person takes a pill that they think is going to relieve their pain, even though it's a sugar pill, they will tend to get a significant effect in terms of pain relief. The mood regulation centres in the brain start to change quite significantly based on what the person believes the pill's going to do not the chemical action of the drug. So there's like a neurological basis to what the person's subjectively experiencing. I almost hesitate to use the word in a scientific setting, but faith, a person's faith in what the, uh, the pill will do, not just the faith in the treatment, but it's also the faith in the practitioner who's administering it. And all of the, if you like, the show, you know, the stethoscope and the white coat and the, all the ritual that goes around that actually has a significant effect as well. So it's sort of like this faith or trust that the mind produces changes in the brain which cascade right down through the body and can influence things, the gut, the, the way the immune system activates, as well as the subjective experience of various things like pain and mood and the like. That was Dr Craig Hussed from the Department of General Practice at Australia's Monash University. Dr Hussed was speaking to Lynn Malcolm in a 2014 episode of ABC Radio's All in the Mind program. The episode looks at the powerful connection between the mind, the body and our health, as does this episode of RAW. Hi, I'm Greta Pools. In episode one, I described how I rediscovered Mrs Snook's gut cleanse diet in 2013 and how the diet changed my views on nutrition and health and set me off down the path of researching and writing Mrs Snook's remarkable life story. But by 2016, my biography of Mrs Snook's life, a project that I thought would take me six months, 12 months top, had stretched out to three years. I had fallen into a hole, swallowed up by doubt and a lack of confidence, with my ever-present harsh inner critic dancing on my grave. I was about to admit defeat and shelve my snook project when something happened that not only taught me a new life lesson, but also revealed to me fresh insight into the criticisms made of Mrs Snook at the coronial inquiry into her brother Stanley's death, and ultimately helped me finish my book. It happened one Sunday morning. I was ruminating on my failure to attract a publisher for my book, and my failure to finish it. There was a knock at the front door. I heard footsteps scurrying down the stairs and a car drive away. When I opened the door, I found a battered A4 manila envelope tucked under the doormat. The envelope had been exposed to the elements and I could not read any of the postage stamps or markings. Only the mail redirect from my previous address, which I had taken out a year ago and had expired, was visible. Inside this ghost envelope, I found wedged safely between two thick sheets of cardboard a photograph of Alice Capone. The photo I found of Alice, or the photo that found me, was taken in 1933 when she was 58 years old and living in America. In the photo, Alice's eyes are upturned, slightly blurred and overexposed. She looks tanned and healthy. Her hair is not yet grey. She wears a loose cotton dress which is described in the caption as a solarium robe made from a pink cotton fabric designed to enable maximum penetration of the sun's healing rays. The caption states that nothing is worn underneath the solarium robe in order to derive the full benefits of the sun. The photo was taken by Acme News Pictures, 
for a story about a public debate that took place in Washington on August 18, 1933, on whether nudism was desirable or detrimental, Alice argued for the affirmative case against the Reverend Jane Coates. I had found the photograph online at a vintage photo cellar in Tennessee over a year previously and immediately ordered it. But when the photo did not arrive after a few weeks, I was told it had been lost in the mailroom and was refunded my money. Now here it was. I was amazed it had found its way to me. Suddenly what I had been reading about Alice Capone's mind cure clipped in. It is a lesson that many people already know, and one that I knew in theory, but not in practice. That is, the role the mind plays in shaping our reality, by how we create and project our thoughts and feelings. You may know this as the law of attraction, the belief that by focusing on positive or negative thoughts, people can bring positive or negative experiences into their life. To get the full benefit of this, you must visualise, feel and act as if you already have received that which you aim to attract into your life. In my case, I had been researching Alice Capone and trying to bring her to life in my book, and now the subject of my focus had materialised in the form of a long-lost photograph, arriving precisely at the moment I was about to admit defeat and give up on both Alice Capone and Mrs Snook's stories. Now here she was, 50 years after her death, arriving in my hour of need. It felt like a sign for me to keep going. The theory of the law of attraction is based on the belief that humans are made of energy, as is the universe, and by channeling the power of our brains we can begin to manipulate universal energies for our benefit. The New Age version of this theory originates from the ideas of Franz Mesmer, a German doctor born in 1734, who developed the concept of animal magnetism. He describes animal magnetism as a mutual influence between the celestial bodies, the earth and animated things, disseminating itself through the substance of the nerves. I noticed in Wikipedia credit for the New Age articulation of the law of attraction which is an ancient concept embedded in various religions, is given to Phineas Quimby, an American hypnotist and inventor born in 1802, who was fascinated by electricity and magnetism. Quimby was an early nature cure healer and believed that when it came to ill health, quote, the trouble is in the mind, for the body is only the house for the mind to dwell in, unquote. No mention is made of Mary Baker Eddy, who founded a religion based on the concept of the laws of attraction and won a court case that attempted to put the argument that she had stolen Quimby's ideas and made them her own. I was surprised I had not heard of Mary Baker Eddy before I began researching Alice Capone's life. She is a fascinating character. The religion she founded and led in the late 1800s became the fastest-growing religion in America in the first decades of the 20th century and attracted many women to its fold, including Alice Capone. I was surprised by the level of contempt in which Mary Baker Eddy is regarded by the medical profession, and by the level of fascination, boarding on obsession, that people like Mark Twain had for her. Twain was interested in the power of the mind in healing, and the ideas Mary Baker Eddy's church espoused, but he was contemptuous of the woman herself. 
describing her as a sordid purloiner of a gospel that she deserved little credit for the authorship of. In my book, I write of Mary Baker Eddy's influence on Alice Capone in a chapter called The Mind Cure. Before Alice became a devotee of Benedict Luss' concept of nutrition and a holistic mind-body theory of treating disease, she was a disciple of Mary Eddy's scriptures, which have it that the mind, if properly focused, could heal all disease. This view has it that the body is merely an appendage to the mind. When I first began researching Alice Capone, I immediately discovered online and downloaded a free copy of her book, Awake Christian Scientists, originally published in Boston in 1921 by the Four Seas Company. But originally, I only scanned the document. At first glance, the book seemed centred around discussion of church bylaws, a topic that held no interest for me. I knew very little about Alice Capone's mother church, the Church of Christ Scientist, apart from a vague idea that the church recommended against its members receiving potentially life-saving blood transfusions and other medical treatments. Only much later did I return to Alice Capone's chatty tome to discover it contained some valuable biographical information about her life. It also led me to further research Mary Baker Eddy. She was born Mary Baker in 1821 near Concord in New Hampshire, and died in Newton, Massachusetts, in 1910. Young Mary was known as the Village Beauty. She was also noted for her independence and intellectual capacity. Her father kept her out of school as he felt her brain was already too large for her body, and presumably schooling would make the situation worse. One of Mary's tutors, the Reverend Enoch Corser, wrote of her, I never before had a pupil with such depth and independence of thought, she is an intellectual and spiritual genius. As a young girl, Mary would lay in a dead faint, communing for hours with the spirits. Her mother thought her special, but the Baker family doctor was unimpressed and diagnosed Mary as having a bad temper. Mary suffered from ill health throughout her life and pursued vegetarianism, homeopathy, magnetic healing and other natural therapies from a young age. She was a patient of Phineas Quimby's and borrowed from his and other natural health doctrines to articulate her own vision of healing, which was centred in the concept of God as a source of divine energy. Mary dreamed of being a writer and her science and health with key to the scriptures was published in 1875, the year of Helis Capone's birth, and became a bestseller and is still in print. Mary developed her religious theories which had a strong connection to healing after a lifetime of seeking her own cures and in particular was motivated by her experience from a severe fall in the street after slipping on ice. Yet by focusing her mind on the divine and willing herself to get better, she rose miraculously from her bed and was healed. Meanwhile, in a distant part of the globe, a young nurse named Alice Capone had become a Christian scientist by the time of her first marriage in 1904 at the age of 29 to Henry Charles Capone. Here's how Alice would later describe her devotion to Mary Baker Eddy, who she referred to as our leader. The following is an excerpt from Alice's 1921 book, Awake Christian Scientists. When quite an infant in science, I remember the most influential newspaper on the West Australian goldfields giving an account of how one of the members of our leader's household 
who resembles Mrs. Eddy in appearance, is receiving Mrs. Eddy's callers, impersonating her, dressed in Mrs. Eddy's ermine cloak, because, the paper affirmed, Mrs. Eddy was either dead or too ill to receive visitors. This malignant attack had the effect of arousing in the writer a great abiding sense of love for our leader, whom she never saw, nor had any great desire to see in the flesh, and whom she knew was persecuted for righteousness' sake. It was this love for her spiritual leader that in 1919 led 44-year-old Alice Caporn to travel to Boston to agitate for reform following changes made to church doctrine and rules following Mary Baker Eddy's death. During her first two years in Boston, Alice was dismissed from a nursing position with a Boston family following an argument with a charity collector from the Red Cross over the organisation's support for vivisection, which is the use of animals in research. Alice later defended her actions, writing, I could do no other than become converted to anti-vivisection the instant I heard about it. I am a vigorous opponent of this awful iniquity. I posted literature on the subject to all those whom I knew to be fond of animals. This, together with my interview with the Secretary of the New England Red Cross and writing a letter to the Secretary of the Anti-Vivisection Society in New York, was the extent of my activities in this worthy movement. Alice was what we call today an activist, or as she called it, a reformer. Prior to her arrival in America, when living in Western Australia, she had been an active follower of Henry George and the Single Tax League. She wrote several articles for the League's monthly journal titled Taxation, and in Boston she chaired a Single Tax League Society. The single taxer, she declared in 1907, is led by the burning desire to straighten out the crooked places in our social system. Later, Alice Caporn's reformer seal would be transferred to Benedict Lust's new naturopathy movement. But when she first arrived in Boston, her energies were centred on agitating for change within the Christian science church hierarchy. In a chapter titled Manarchy, in her book Awake Christian Scientists, she asks... Does it not appear inconsistent that a church founded by Mrs Eddy, a woman, and governed by laws which she established, should have practically no representation by women? She declared herself willing to formally call for the sacking of the church's director. I believe there may be no member of the church better suited than I am to call for the dismissal of the director, she wrote. As she feared nothing... She stated that she owed her life to Christian science and if it was not for Christian science, she would have been in the madhouse. She reflects on her devotion to the cause. Nothing but the greater sense of loving solicitude for our cause could have induced me to leave the cool comfort of my home, to walk about the city day after day, always engaged in some matter directly concerning the situation at headquarters. I was getting ready to publish my letter in the Boston Herald and knew well the malicious beliefs of animal magnetism it would likely to arouse. The cruel experiences our beloved leader experienced in order to bring the truth to suffering humanity was well fixed in my thoughts. The concept of malicious animal magnetism, referred to here by Alice Caporn, was based on mesmer but developed by Mary Eddy. In the sense that Alice used the term, animal magnetism could also refer to a collective, negative or malicious energy. This was a theory popularised by Mary Eddy, who believed that such energy could lead to the death of both the person who channelled such anger or hatred at a subject 
and also the person who was the target of these dark emotions. But Alice was not about to let the malicious energy of others deny her a voice. On June 3, 1919, the New York Herald reported, Mrs H.C. Capone of the Kalgoorlie chapter was one of two Christian scientists cut off trying to ask a question at an important public meeting. The journalist commented that Mrs Capone seemed far from cast down by the rebuff. In her 1921 book, Alice recalls an incident that followed this meeting. A lady came out of the crowd and touched me kindly on the shoulder and said, Are you the lady who wanted to speak this afternoon? I have nothing to say now, I replied. I only want to say I was sorry that we could not have heard from you, she replied. We always like to hear from the members. You will hear from me, I assured her. She looked incredulous. From reading more about Alice's devotion to the Christian Science Church and the beliefs that she held regarding the body being the instrument of the mind, I came to realise that although she would soon throw the full weight of her devotional energies into entropathy, Alice always retained a strong belief in the power of the mind to heal. For Lust and the early naturopaths, healing involved both the mind and the body. One could not be separated from another. While Alice later wrote that she had seen naturopathy work in cases where Christian science had failed, her later writings indicate she still retained a foundation belief of the critical role the mind plays in healing. When she was aged in her 60s, Alice articulated the belief that all erroneous behaviour was due to an incorrect attitude or process of thought, and for her, all correct thought began with diet. She wrote, Man charges himself daily, hourly, with either destructive or constructive elements according to his living and eating and thinking habits. Anger, resentment and melancholia sends destructive vibrations through the physical organism. For Alice Capone, the brain was similar to a radio receiving instrument, which if tuned correctly by eating the right foods, was capable of accessing the higher, wider atmosphere of thought and a fourth dimensional world. She believed it was possible, as she put it, for brain energy to soar above the ordinary, up to the higher altitudes, the intellectual, cultural or spiritual planes, by harnessing the same kind of bodily chemicals normally engaged in sex and procreation. Man, know yourself, for within your portals lies the very essence of unimaginable power, she wrote. So how is all this relevant to the trial of Dorothea Snook, which we will look at in next week's episode? Because Mrs Snook was Alice Capone's student. She believed Alice Capone had saved her life, and she followed Alice Capone's teachings faithfully. Alice Capone would have taught her the critical role that the mind and faith has in the healing process. And I had come to realise, it was Mrs Snook's faith in her diet and the nature cure and the strength of her personality that most raised the ire of those opposed to her. Here's one of Mrs Snook's most severe critics, Gavin O'Connor, writing in the AMA's Australian Medical Journal in 1987 about a one-off consultation he and his wife had with Mrs Snook, who he refers to as Mrs Smith. Her confidence is absolute, Mr O'Connor wrote of Mrs Snook. She is the fount of all wisdom. To question her is to question rationality itself, and it indicates that you are not sincere in seeking help. He questioned why naturopaths have become successful, writing... Even some doctors have abandoned scepticism and logic and are impressed. But it works, they claim. It can't do any harm. There's nothing to lose. 
I don't know why this should be so. Certainly Mrs Smith's absolute confidence goes some way to explaining it. When describing the importance of the mind to healing, Mrs Snook liked to refer to the remarkable 19th century French tightrope walker Charles Blondin, who was famed for crossing the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Had Blondin believed it was impossible to walk over the rope, Mrs Snook wrote, he could never have done it. In her view, fear must disappear in order for resolve to take its place. Mrs Snook had inherited from Alice Capone a belief system that required banishing fear and negativity from the mind and having faith in a positive outcome was critical to the success of achieving that outcome. Here's melanoma survivor Dale Highway, who we heard from in episode one. I gave everything up. I didn't deviate from that diet for one, nothing, nothing. I was too scared, far too scared to, and I just stuck by that. And I remember the, the hardest part of that for me was the outside lettuce leaves. We had to juice them up, the darkest green ones, and that just looked dreadful when it came out in the, in the glass. I used to just hold my nose, drink it down and, and then drink the other juice after it because it was just revolting but so full of iron. It would have been marvellous. What Mrs. Hook got into trouble for was her sort of saying, you can get better, you will get better, you, and she wouldn't allow any doubt or stupidity. Yes, yes. Did you remember that about her? I remember her being very much like that. Yes, 100% positive, that was it. You will and that's it. You do this and you will definitely be fine. And yes. Did you find that sort of encouraging mm -hmm. at the time? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. In fact, uh, you know, like I say, I having stuck it out because it was quite a a bland diet, not a lot in there as such, but sticking it out did not bother me at all. And it was not till right towards the end, as I say, it was a good six months that I did it for. And then she was leading me on to like a vegan diet. I swear by the diet. I've said to many, many people over the years, I believe, and I do believe very much so, that it was that diet that made me okay. That fixed me. Nothing ever came back. I never had any other problems uh, with melanoma or anything along that line or my tests always were good. And I really, really believe 100% that it was the diet. Dale had faith not only in the diet but in Mrs Snook. And if you recall from the beginning of this episode, Dr Craig Hussed discussed how the mind activates changes in the immune system simply from a person having faith in a cure and trust in the practitioner who is administering it. For Professor Stephen Myers from the Southern Cross University, who is both a naturopath and medical doctor and a practitioner of complementary medicine, the mind is extremely important to health and wellness. Nobody can actually remove a mind from a body and say, here's your physical components and here's your mental components. I've done a, a number of research studies into occupational stress and there's no doubt that stress gives rise to a lot of the chronic conditions that people actually suffer from. Anger is probably a much greater cardiovascular risk factor than cholesterol is. And yet we take cholesterol pills until um, the cows come home, but very rarely do you see a doctor stopping to talk to their patients about how you're managing anger in your life and is anger an issue that you actually really need to deal with. 
I think one of the things that we're finding is that our emotional space has a significant influence on our physiology. The data is just piling up, just getting more and more data every year about the role that these things play in our well-being. Dorothy Snook had a strong spiritual focus. She was considered psychic by her family. One of her clients, Michael, told me he absolutely believed that she had psychic abilities. He said he could feel her aura. She had an energy about her. She had this presence, Michael said. Mrs Snook's children described their mother as outspoken about what she believed in. She had an intense manner and several of Mrs Snook's former clients described her as terrifying if her rules were not followed. Daughter Sylvia comments. She was very, very ferocious with her discipline. I've heard her say to people, and if they hadn't stuck to that diet, they were out the door, she wouldn't have anything to do with them. So they got the good talking to. Other people said, if it wasn't for your mother's strength, I wouldn't have got through. You may remember for Charles Harris's testimonial last week that his faith in Mrs Snook and his new way of eating had helped him feel he had overcome his terminal disease diagnosis. The absolute confidence in her abilities and her diet, for which Mrs Snook was attacked by the medical profession, was also one of her greatest strengths. She gave her clients hope that they would become better, but they needed to have faith in her and in her raw food cleansing diet. For Mrs Snook, balance was the key, avoiding the extremes of emotion. The spiritual side of a person's nature was the real you, while the body was, to paraphrase Phineas Quimby, the house in which you live. How Mrs Snook applied Alice Capone's Lessons of the Mind Cure to her work as a naturopath is demonstrated in a 1980s brochure for her naturopathy retreat at Northam. So often the patient hears the doctor's verdict as a criminal hears his death sentence. Arise, dear soul, because you have just started to live and what you can do with the human body will be a living miracle even to you. So let us get started on a program of good house cleaning and see what Mother Nature is going to do for you. It is one thing to tell a person that they must have faith, but quite another to be in the situation where you are the one who must have faith in order to survive or prevail at a desperate time. And in 1975, it was Mrs Snook who needed to heed her own advice as she once again faced the tragedy of losing one of her children. Mrs Snook had just returned from speaking at the Cancer Convention in America. Not long after she arrived home, her eldest daughter Barbara, aged in her 30s, and the mother of three teenage boys, suffered a terrible accident. Barbara had been sitting on the window ledge of her Sydney apartment, on the other side of the country, to her mother. She was cleaning windows and leaned out a little too far. She lost her balance and fell headfirst to the ground, striking her head on metal bins to further complicate her injury. Barbara's sister Sylvia recalls the events. Luckily, the only thing that saved her life really was that there was a doctor's surgery right next door. One of her boys ran around and um, the doctor came immediately and she had to have a tracheotomy or whatever it is where they cut the throat out and the throat and put her air tube down. Then she was put into hospital and she was in a coma. 
The family recalls it was some time before the Sydney doctors felt Barbara had stabilised enough to make the five-hour flight to Perth. Mrs Snook hired a nurse to accompany Barbara on the flight and permission was only given for Barbara to travel, provided she was admitted into Royal Perth Hospital on her arrival. Mrs Snook desperately wanted Barbara home, but the doctors wouldn't allow that. They thought Barbara was, in the terminology of the day, a vegetable. They did not think she would ever leave the hospital. Mrs Snook campaigned for Barbara to be discharged into her care and taken home. She believed that in order for Barbara's health to improve, she needed to be properly nourished and her body kept moving. But her views caused friction with the hospital. Mrs Snook visited Barbara every day. She would massage Barbara's body from the tips of Barbara's toes to the tips of her fingers, exercising every muscle to keep it alive. The family believed that such massage therapy was sorely missing in the hospital's care of Barbara. The family recalled that six months or so after the accident, Barbara began to move her little finger. The doctors recommended that she have brain surgery in an attempt to regain further brain function. Mrs Snook was placed under great pressure to agree to this surgery for Barbara. However, there were no guarantees. She believed that Barbara would be better off at home with her treatment rather than alone and neglected in the hospital. The Snook children were individually approached by hospital staff in an attempt to gain support for Barbara's operation, but the family all stood behind their mother. Mrs Snook was reportedly threatened with having Barbara been made a ward of the state, which would allow the hospital to go ahead and perform the operation without her mother's consent. However, Mrs Snook stood firm, drawing upon the strength of her convictions and her faith that she could make Barbara well again. Eventually, Mrs Snook was allowed to take Barbara home and she enlisted her family, who were mostly all trained in massage and other natural healing treatments, to assist her and Leslie in the 24-hour care of Barbara. Mrs Snook's eldest son, Roy, was working for the Dampier Salt Mine in the Pilbara region of Western Australia during this time and he remembers taking trips back from Dampier to Perth to visit his parents and Barbara. He recalls his parents spent all their time caring for Barbara. I used to come down and stay every now and again from Dampier with them, and they certainly looked after Barbara hand and foot from being a, a vegetable to someone who can look after herself. Dad uh, had fixed up a chair for her, and she was so incapacitated that her head had to be strapped upright and she was fed annually um, you know, three, four times a day by mum and dad because at that time dad had retired. Uh, she was, uh, had no control over her bowels or any of that sort of stuff. She was basically tied into this chair and including her head. She had a strap around her brow for, to hold her up. She was just being fed just like a baby, um, slobbering, dropping food everywhere. Barbara's sister Sylvia was living at her parents' home at the time. Sylvia recalls her mother kept massaging Barbara and moving her. When she first returned to the Snook home from the hospital, Barbara was fed with a tube. Mrs Snook fed her juices and soya milk from recipes for babies. After the tube was taken out, Barbara was fed with the baby's bottle. Here's Sylvia. Mum got a hospital bag, got her home, and started massaging her. She was fed with a tube at that stage, so Mum started giving her the juices and... Um for your milk for babies uh, that was around at that time. She just kept massaging her and then she was 
massaging her and kept moving her and and all that because as Barbara came back into consciousness she hit out at things and she didn't want to do things and um, you know mum would be forever pushing her and pushing her and we used to get one inside mum and I and we used to sort of not drag her but put, hold her upright so that she could take those first steps when mum took that tube out that was feeding her directly to the stomach she got a baby's bottle and Barbara actually had to learn to swallow again the family believed Barbara's recovery was aided by their mother's decision to take Barbara to the Philippines to be treated by a faith healer. Mrs Snook's daughter Mari recalls her parents took Barbara over on a stretcher to the Philippines where they consulted a faith healer. Mrs Snook had researched the genuine faith healers. Her husband Leslie did not believe in any of it but went along to help. The faith healer laid Barbara on a table he removed blood clots from Barbara's body in front of her mum and dad. The faith healer said Barbara would start to recover within three months. Mari says that three months to the day of their visit to the faith healer, Barbara spoke her first word. Barbara said Sylvia, the name of her sister who was massaging her at the time. Sylvia says Barbara experienced a complete recovery, apart from a bit of a balance issue, and she also had what appeared to be a curvature of the spine from lying so long and not moving. Barbara's speech is also slurred. Says Mari, Barbara can talk, but it is difficult to understand her unless you are around her a lot. In January 1984, the Australian women's magazine New Idea published an article by Pauline Lee on Barbara's remarkable recovery from the living dead. The article is titled For the Love of Barbara, how a courageous Perth woman battled to bring her daughter back from the living dead. Nine years ago, it reads, Barbara Ho fell from her Sydney flat while cleaning windows and suffered massive head injuries. Doctors told her family and three teenage sons as she lay unconscious in Sydney's Royal North Shore Hospital, if she does live, she'll be a vegetable for the rest of her life. It was a grim and damning prognosis, but they had reckoned without any knowledge of Barbara's mother, Mrs Dorothea Snook, 70, a Perth naturopath, or the power of her faith. She took her daughter home and, with the help of her family, gently coaxed her out of the coma under which Barbara lived for three years. Today, Barbara says, I knew nothing of what was going on around me, but I've since learned that Mum defied the doctors by taking me back to her Perth home after I had spent six months in hospital, making no progress whatsoever. They threatened to make me a ward of the state because they were so sure my mother would kill me. Instead, she gave me new life. A year after the accident, Mrs Snook and her late husband, Leslie, took Barbara to the Philippines to be treated by faith healers. Mrs Snook says their treatment was an integral part of her daughter's recovery. There was no instant change in Barbara's condition. Her parents brought her home as she had arrived in Manila on a stretcher, but the Snooks were not disappointed. Faith healing is on a highly spiritual plane, Mrs Snook says. For weeks after our return, we were in spiritual communion with the doctors in the Philippines. Every night at 8pm we would all pray, expressing our faith in Jesus, togetherness and our trust in the spiritual power of healing. Mrs Snook's own treatment continued. She removed the feeding tube, which doctors said Barbara would need for the rest of her life, 
and began teaching her to swallow juices from a baby's bottle. There was a daily ritual of dragging Barbara around her bedroom, trying to coax her to walk, and endless massage sessions to stimulate the blood supply to Barbara's lifeless limbs. Gradually, Barbara learnt to walk again, but it was the communication breakthrough which signalled her recovery was guaranteed. Her mother said, All we could get from her were grunts and incomprehensible noises. It was hard to tell whether she could communicate with us at all. Then I put a pencil in her hand, and she instantly scribbled, What do you want me to write? It was a long and difficult climb back, but Mum's faith carried us all along, says Barbara's sister, Sylvia. It happened about three years after the accident, when Barbara was being massaged out in the sunshine. Mum said to her, Take a big, deep breath and say, Sylvia. She opened her eyes and did exactly what she had been told. Barbara, who now walks and talks slowly and deliberately, is continuing to improve. Barbara says, I've started to enjoy life again. I can get about on my own and even go across to Sydney regularly to visit my two delightful grandchildren and my three grown-up sons. Then she adds, it's frightening to speculate on the number of head-injured accident victims now lying in hospitals classed as living vegetables. I believe many, given the right treatment, could recover just as I did. Following Barbara's recovery, she lived with her parents and moved with Mrs Snook to Northam after Leslie Snook's death in 1982. Barbara was living with her mother when her uncle Stanley died at their farm in Northam in 1989. That's next week on Raw. I'm Greta Pauls and I hope you will join me then. If you have enjoyed Mrs Snook's story so far, please don't forget to subscribe. And if you could take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, I would appreciate it. If you would like to learn more, visit my website, gretapools.com, for my biography of Mrs Snook, which includes a gut cleanse diet, plus Mrs Snook's own writings. The links are on the episode's webpage. Mm-hmm.